Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshita, and tonight we have a really, really wonderful show scheduled in which Larry Turnbull was going to talk to you about how you can use different tools and tips and tricks to work and improve your home. So many of you may know Larry Tornbow, who is the managing director of ACB Radio, and he has a lot of experience in terms of working on homes and such. So, Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, I think this is really a wonderful topic. And, uh, you know, for many of us, many of us have been sighted at some time in our life. Others have been visually impaired all of our life. But many people with low vision often feel that it's too dangerous to try to do home improvement or it's going to be too difficult to do. And how did you get involved with doing this type of home improvement in construction? I pretty much grew up with it uh, all of my life. My grandfather uh, did a lot of repairs around the house, and I worked with him, and he worked um, most of his life, you know, after he retired from the Coast Guard, he worked as a, as a maintenance supervisor for a large uh, grocery chain in Florida uh, called Publix. Um, for those of you that um, are not familiar with the southeast region of the U.S., uh, Publix uh, started in Florida and then branched out throughout the southeast. And he did a lot of work on um, the uh, freezers and air conditioning systems and all the major appliances in the public's warehouses. And uh, during the summer when I wasn't in school, um, I went on when I was visiting him in uh, South Florida uh, around the Miami area, uh, I went on jobs with him and worked on air conditioning and uh, doing electrical work and kind of all kinds of handy things that he did around the house or on the job. Well, you know, what's really interesting is these particular types of projects that you're talking about, refrigeration and electrical, that's not basic carpentry of just pounding in a nail or screwing in a screw. Uh, it was pretty complicated stuff that you're working on, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. And I had sight until I was about um, seven, almost eight years old. And then I lost my vision totally uh, due to uh, retinoblastoma, which uh, for those of you that may not know what that is, that's cancer of the retina. So as you were doing a lot of this then, you were actually completely, totally blind, and you were working on electrical and and different levels of refrigeration. Is that right? As a totally yes. blind child? Yes. Yes. So how did that go over with your, your, your parents? Did your parents think, no, no, you know, granddaddy, don't take him. This is something that's just too dangerous for him to be out there, or... Were they very understanding that they had the faith in him? Uh, they were very understanding. My 
mom especially because this is was her dad that uh, you know was doing all this and she learned a lot of uh, doing handiwork from him as well. She took after him, and I guess that gene followed down to me. Wow, that's <laughs> really, really something. So what were some of the things that you could remember that your grandfather said to you as he was teaching you to use basic tools and then later power tools and saws? And what what did he actually say or what experience he, did he have he did, working with the blind? Sure. He, he did stress safety, which any time I work on anything, I take safety very seriously. Um, you don't have to be totally afraid of working on certain things, um, but you do have to respect it. You know, electricity being one, if you're going to work with electricity, you need to be <laughs> absolutely certain that the circuit you're working on is turned off. And, you know, if you're working on a small appliance or any appliance, you make sure it's unplugged, or if you're working on an outlet, make sure the breaker to it is turned off. And when you're working with any tool, of course, safety goes a long way there, too, especially if you're dealing with, you know, a saw or a utility knife or anything like that. Um, you know, there are simple things you can do to limit your chances of injury, uh, like wearing uh, work gloves or putting on uh, safety glasses to make sure no debris comes up and hits you in the eyes, or, you know, wearing uh, ear protection if you're going to be using some power tools that can be pretty loud. Yeah, that that's a good point. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm really curious because I I have tried to do some basic things as as I was losing vision, but I was a I was an adult as I began to lose vision. I was 44 years old when my vision started to deteriorate, and so I I really needed more light. Lighting really helped me to see, and I thought that I had turned off the circuit breaker, and uh, it, it it really wasn't off. When I hit touched that wire with my hand, it it was on, and oh my gosh, was it a shock! I, I, uh, I'll never forget <laughs> that. So, how does a person who is blind? What are the tools that you might use to be able to verify that the circuit you're working on that it's off? Well, uh, if you're going to work on an outlet, um, a simple household item that uh, I always use is a radio. You know, just plug in a radio and turn it on and turn the volume up and then go to your breaker box and start flipping breakers until you find the one that turns off that circuit. Oh, and, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's easy. <laughs> and then there are, um, you can get them from any home center uh, that's in your area, they do have probes that you can use to touch wires with or, you know, put in your outlet that will emit a tone if there is power present. Oh, and okay, you yes. you can make sure. 
you can make sure that there's no electricity there when you start to work on it. Uh, and then what that's what, what is that called, Larry? That that device. That's a really good device. It's um, I think they just call it a, an electrical uh, testing probe. Okay. And you can just make sure that uh, most of them do have audio, but some do not. So make sure you know what you're getting before you purchase it and take it home, because some only have. Um, lights on there for indicating power. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, uh, what are some of the other types of things that, that you went on and, and did after working with your grandfather at the at the grocery stores? Did you go on to shop classes in middle school or in high school? Yes, I, yes, I did take wood shop throughout all of my years of high school. Um, I went to the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind, and they had a wood shop there. And they had all kinds of, uh, you know, gadgets and stuff that we got to use. I mean, we got to use table saws and drills and planers and drill presses. and You guys used everything that... You know, we had in our wood shop. So, you know, the first question that I have with that is, if you're going to measure uh, the width of a piece of wood that you're cutting on the table saw, how how did you do that when you didn't have any vision? Did you use something like a Braille tape measure, or is there something else? Yeah, we used uh, Braille rulers and Braille tape measures, and they also have ones, for those of you with low vision, they do have tape measures with large print uh, numbers and markings on them. And, and of course, like I said, they got the Braille tape measures. And now, I think it was it was after I graduated from high school that these came out. They have the talking tape measures. Oh, they do. I, I have never, ever seen one of those. Yes. And... We would, uh, you know, use that to measure the piece of wood. And the shop teacher, he was brilliant. He put uh, guides on these tools where we can move the guide according to the measurement that we want to cut. And we were able to safely use these, you know, power tools to cut and shape the wood into what we were making. Wow, that that. That is fantastic, and I, I imagine when you finished one of your first, you know, major projects, you must have just been so happy with the results. I remember in Woodshop, I was in seventh grade, and I built this end table, and I just couldn't believe how nice it came out. I mean, I, I, I just couldn't believe that I did it. The teacher, he helped me to draw the plans, and we did what we did. It was out of mahogany, but after we had sprayed it with lacquer and, you know, made it just so beautiful, I just couldn't believe that this was something that a student made, and I I just felt so proud. But I felt good knowing that I was able to do something like that. Uh, What was the first project that you made in Woodshop that gave you that similar sort of feeling? Um, it was actually 
a wooden train set. A train um, set? A train set? Yes, uh, there were wooden train cars that uh, hooked together, and um, it actually even had they had even uh, the wheels on them where the the cars could roll. Wow. Um, it was it was pretty interesting. And then after that, we made some uh, plant stands where you could uh, put your plants on them that had a, like a lower shelf and an upper shelf. And I actually still have a couple of them here at my house that, you know, <laughs> I made over, uh, gosh, it's probably been almost 30 years now. <laughs> that is amazing. I, I'm, I'm really, really so interested in the train. I mean, the amount of detail that you probably had in each of these trains was just so meticulous that's yes you were you using chisels to you know carve out certain parts of the train or we used a lathe it's called a lathe and for those of you that may not know what a lathe is it's a machine that for some pieces of wood that you might be shaping uh, you put the wood on there, and it spins, and then you use, uh, you know, certain carving tools to carve out the shape that you want that piece of wood to be. And also, of course, you, we used uh, these large uh, belt sanders to, you know, smooth out the edges. And we used, uh, there was also another little machine to make the for the round pieces called a ringmaster that uh, would carve out the rings. And that kind of worked like a mini lathe. Wow, that's really, really amazing. I'm just visualizing how you would do all this, and it, it, it really seems so difficult. I'd used the lathe, and uh, the, the, when I used the lathe, there was so much visual input, you know, where I had to put the chisel and how far did I have to move it? All of that was based on vision. How in the world did you know how far down in depth to push your chisels and when to move to the right or when to move to the left without seeing what your product is? That's where a lot of those the shop teachers, actually there were a couple of them, that were really brilliant on creating the guides to do it. I wouldn't recommend just buying a lathe and trying it yourself without some of these guides that they put on there that, you know, where you can adjust how far you wanted the tool to penetrate the wood and and where you wanted to penetrate it. But it was still amazing that, you know, that they were, you know, the, what they came up with in order for us to use these guides and not have to have any sight to do it. Wow. Uh, so tonight I know that you wanted to talk about some of the different types of projects that our listeners may do at their own home. And one one of our listeners tonight on the call, he was just telling me how he just bought a new home in Wyoming and he just knocked out a wall today. I just said, my goodness, <laughs> that's a, quite a big project. Excellent. <laughs> I hope you I, I hope you figured out whether or not it was load bearing before you knocked it out. <laughs> I, I hope so too. <laughs> if, if, for those of you that may not know, because 
but it will be easy for me to slip into the jargon that a lot of builders use because one of the things that I remember growing up is uh, living with my parents. There were a couple of houses that we lived in and uh, renovated. You know, we did a lot of remodeling, and they let me help right along with them as they were doing it. Uh, my dad was in the Navy for uh, about 27 years, and we moved around quite a bit, and we did a lot of uh, renovation on houses, especially when I was in middle and high school, and even after I went into college, uh, there was a friend of ours that let us live in one of his houses for a while rent-free while we remodeled it for him. So load-bearing, for those of you that may not know, uh, if a wall is load-bearing, that means it's supporting part of your roof. And if you are going to move that wall or take it out totally, you need to have something there in its place to continue to support the roof or whether it's a uh, second floor or whatnot. And um, usually if you're brave enough to go up into your attic, you can find out whether or not that wall is load-bearing or you can have uh, an inspector uh, come into your home and uh, look at it for you. Wow. Hey, well, Larry, tell us some of the, about some of the projects that that you wanted to share with us about that our listeners might try to do at their own homes. What are some of the projects that you had in mind? Okay, well, we'll start out with some easy ones because um, I know some of this uh, could be um, pretty uh, pretty daunting to try to tackle if you've never done anything like this before. So we'll start out with a couple of small ones. So yeah, I, I like those easy ones. <laughs> yeah. So most houses, um, as you probably are aware, the walls are made of a material that they call drywall. And if you're renting a place or if you even if you own it and you've had pictures up there or something hanging on the wall and you remove it and you want to fill that hole, uh, there's uh, some small things you can get to do just that. Um, they have, at the home centers, they have, uh, they call it drywall compound, which is, when you buy it, it comes in a powder form and you have to mix it with water and make it the consistency of peanut butter. And then you can fill those small holes with it and let it dry and then use the fine sandpaper to smooth it out. Um, and those are for small holes. Bigger holes will require a little more um, filling. In other words, you might have to use, um, let's say the hole's about the size of a quarter or maybe a little bit larger, and you can use old newspaper along with the compound to fill it in and, you know, try to get it even with the rest of the wall. And then for something like that, after you get it 
build and you get it smoothed out, you might have to have a little bit of sighted assistance if you want to paint it and make it match the rest of the wall. Um, I mean, you could paint it yourself, but you might want to have somebody look at it to see if it stands out or blends in. And obviously, you want it to blend in if you can. Um, now, if you have a very large hole in your drywall, and this happened to me um, a few years ago, uh, I had a couple of large dogs in my house that liked to play, and they would get pretty rough. And one time, one of them fell against one of the walls and put a big hole in it. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> What kind of dog is this? This dog's over a hundred pounds. Yeah, large Labradors. Oh, gee. <laughs> wow! I never thought and a dog could do that. <laughs> well, they they labs love to play, and sometimes when they get wrestling pretty rough, they could uh, <laughs> tumble and hit things and not even care where they land. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so what I had to do, and I mean, it was a pretty big hole, so what I had to do is cut out the damaged drywall, and I just used a basic utility knife to do it. Um, and I had to find, they call them the studs, and those are the boards inside the wall that the drywall uh, gets secured to. Uh, I had to cut the hole kind of shape it into a square and cut all the way out to where each stud was located. So then I had to get another piece of drywall, which you can get from your home center. And I had to, of course, I measured the hole and then I got the home center to cut, to cut the piece to the measurements that I measured out. And then I was able to put the piece in place and used uh, uh, drywall screws or wood screws would work too um, to secure that piece against the studs. And then, of course, I had to use the compound to um, fill in the seams, you know, where the new wall was meeting the rest of the the rest of the wall that it was uh, getting joined to. And once those seams were filled in, then I had to have somebody help me paint it to try to get it to blend in. But actually it it worked out well because at that point I was starting to remodel that house and, and get it ready to sell anyway. So the whole wall ended up getting painted. Wow. That's just, you know, that is great. That is great. I, I I was wondering how you fix that big hole. Uh, so you actually just put in another piece of drywall and patched it. That's great. Yep. You know, Larry, you know, for the house that I live in, yeah, we do have drywall, and there's times that we have little holes. In, but I wanted to ask you, my drywall is sort of textured. It's not perfectly smooth like a chalkboard or something. It has little, you know, bumps and things on there to give it some texture. How how can I re- repair a hole like the size of a quarter or so 
and have some texture on that little part that I fixed. So it's not the texture. If it is true drywall, um, there are paints that can that have that texture on them. You can have the texture oh. mixed in. Oh, okay. Um, now, if you have an older house that was built, let's say in the fifties or sixties, you may have uh, an old-fashioned wall made of plaster. Now that is a whole different ball game in itself because that is extremely difficult to repair uh, if it gets a hole in it. Um, that I would recommend getting a professional in there to do that because when you try to fill in those holes, if you don't do it right, it just uh, continues to fall apart. It just doesn't stay. It's it's a very difficult material um, to uh, to deal with, and I think a lot of builders quit using that in the early to mid seventies. Okay. Okay. Uh, what what's the next project that you have? We already know how to fix holes and and things on the walls. Uh, what's the next project? Give us something more difficult. <laughs> okay. Well, the other thing I was to say that's easy that um, some of you may want to do. You know, you you could replace doorknobs. Those are pretty easy to do. Um, the only trick with them is uh, when you take them apart. There are parts in there that are pretty small, so you got to make sure you don't lose any of them when you take the uh, doorknob off. Uh, unless you're going to replace it entirely, then usually, you know, the doorknobs will come with all the parts that you need. But then again, when you open that package, uh, make sure you have everything accounted for and that you don't lose any of the pieces there, and just compare it with. Uh, the old doorknob, and you'll see how it all goes together. It's usually held on by two screws, and it's just a matter of lining up all the parts that uh, go into it. Um, let's see. Next one. Okay, so another thing you can do um, let's talk about repairing window screens since we are oh. in spring now. Yeah. The weather is going to warm if it hasn't already warmed up in your area. And you'll want to open up your windows to let the good old fresh air in. That's right. <clears throat> and... Over time, screens do tend to, um, depending on what material they're made of, uh, if they're made of vinyl, some have been known to dry rot and start uh, developing larger holes in them. Um, and even the aluminum ones, they could rust at over a certain time and uh, start coming away from the frame. So now there are a couple of special tools that you'll need to uh, do this. The screen is held to the frame by a, 
it's called spline, and what it is, it's like a rubber string-like, um, it's like a gasket that goes around the edges of the screen, and it goes down into the grooves on the frame that the screen's being held to. So what you'll want to do, and I actually did a demonstration of this on one of my episodes of a show I do called Handy Around the House. And you just take the screen out of the window and lay it on a flat surface like a work table. And you use a flat tip screwdriver to get the spline out of the grooves that go around the the, the frame that the screen is being held to. And very carefully... Uh, take that spline out. You want to be very careful removing it if you want to reuse it um, because it can uh, start to tear and go to pieces on you. But the home centers do have new spline if you want to uh, go ahead and replace it when you buy the screen, which usually comes in uh, different size rolls depending on how much of it you want. And the width is pretty standard, so you don't have to worry about um, exact measuring, you know, when you go to buy it. Um, And what you do with the new screen, once you have all the old screen out and the spline out, is you'll lay the new screen over the frame, and then they have what they call a splining tool. And what this looks like, It has um, a handle in the middle. It has two wheels, one on each end. One of the wheels has a round edge around it. And the other end, that wheel has like a concave uh, groove around it that, you know, indents a little bit. And... The first wheel you use to work the screen into the grooves on the frame. And once you have it all worked in, and again, you got to be careful with it because you don't want to go too hard with it or else you'll end up ripping the new screen, and <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> As one thing with this project, I mean, it's easy to do, but it does take quite a bit of time, and you do have to have a lot of patience with it. Um, Once you get the screen into the edges, then you lay the spline in those grooves that you just worked the screen into, so it'll secure the screen to the frame. And you use the end of the splining tool that has the concave edge on it, because the spline will fit into that concave, and you can push it into the um, grooves on the edge of the frame. And what I do, um, when I get to the corner of the frame, is I'll switch to the flat-headed screwdriver to push the corner, you know, the spline into the corner because it's hard for the splining tool to get in the corner itself because the frame is at a 90-degree angle. 
which is L-shaped, by the way, um, you, you, and you slowly work around the whole entire frame uh, when you're putting this in. And then once you have the screen secured with the spline, then the next thing you have to do is trim the excess screen off the edges. And I just use a pair of uh, regular um, scissors to do that and just cut it down to where it's, you know, where there's not enough, you know, where you don't have excess screen hanging off the edges of the frame. And you can leave a little bit of play in the middle where the screen isn't extremely stretch tight because if it's stretched too tight then the chances of it getting ripped are you know the risk of it getting ripped is a lot more um, present if it's really tight because all it would take just a little push and it would do that so I leave a little bit of play in there and then you know once you're done and you check all the work then you just reinstall that screen frame you know into the window that you took it from wow <laughs> you know that's great. I got to tell you something. I did replace a screen just the way that you said. I bought the new spline, but yep. I didn't. I didn't know there was something called a spline tool, yep. and I was trying to use the flat edge of a screwdriver to get that spline in that groove, and it was it was terrible. It was a disaster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you got to have the right tools. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it, it does make things easier. Um, and you can, you know, apply that same um, thing to larger screens, you know, like screen doors and um, screen porches and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Larry, you mentioned that you have a show. And uh, what is it called? And is this something that's on the radio or is on YouTube? How do people get to uh, see your show? This is called Handy Around the House, and it's on ACB Radio Mainstream. And it's on Thursday night at 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, this show alternates with another one that we have. It alternates monthly. So... Um, it alternates with a show called Legendary Insights, uh, done by a lady named Laura Legendary. Some of you may know her. Um, and she has the even month. Um, so she'll be on instead of me during the month of April. And I'll be back on in May with my next episode. But, um... I do have the podcast feed that you can listen to the show anytime you like. And the URL to that feed is acbradio.org forward slash house dot XML. That's the URL you can use with your um, device that you use to pull down podcasts. And you can add that in, and you'll uh, 
get my shows. The latest episode I did, I demonstrate installing uh, smoke detectors, which is another thing you really should have around your house um, in case uh, a fire breaks out for any reason, which none of obviously nobody wants that to happen. Um, so smoke detectors are a good thing to have. And if you have uh, gas appliances in your house, then the carbon monoxide detector is another must-have device that you need to install in your house. So, yeah, that was my latest show. I uh, demonstrated installing a smoke detector and testing it and also testing a carbon monoxide detector. And I talked about general safety around the house, you know, a good idea to have a fire extinguisher around and, and you know, things like that. Okay, yeah, we'll have people go on that particular show, you know. Yeah. So, um, what's the next project that you have? So uh, we have we fixed the screens, we got the walls fixed. What's next? The roof? <laughs> <laughs> um, roof, I wouldn't recommend anybody trying to do too much with that because some of the bigger projects do require um, inspections. You have to pull what they call a permit. Depending on where you live, the requirements could differ a little bit. Um, but when you get it to working on roofs and um, yeah. major projects like working on your heating and air conditioning system, um, stuff like that do require you pull a permit and then when you complete the repairs or improvements then an inspector would come out and inspect the work and make sure it was done right yeah now with heating and air conditioning there are small things you can do um if you need to make some small repairs i mean obviously you can change your air filter which they recommend you do every um, there have been different recommendations on this, but my general rule is if you do not have pets, um, then you could probably change the filter once every six months, you know, once in the spring and once in the fall, you know, before you start using your heat or your air conditioning. If you do have pets, then I recommend uh, doing it every two to three months because especially with long-haired dogs, long-haired cats, that sort of thing, you'll have a lot of uh, hair flying around and pet dandruff and that sort of thing. And if you have um, pet allergies, then you'll definitely want to um, change that filter more often. Other Another project I'm going to do here with the spring. This one will be pretty easy. Um, I just uh, bought a house back in October of 16. Um, and with uh, spring coming on, I'm going to want to start doing more projects outdoors. Mm -hmm. And one of them, I happen to have a large wooden deck um, that uh, Wow. is in my backyard. Yeah, those are so beautiful. Boy. Yes, beautiful. they are. 
And some of the boards on the steps that go from the deck down into the yard, uh, some of the stairs are a little bit loose. But there's, you know, as long as the boards are in good shape, it's very easy to uh, fix that problem. And usually, you know, a lot of times builders will use nails to nail those boards down. And over time, with the weather, uh, extremes, those uh, boards and those nails could uh, pop up and become loose. Right. What I would recommend is take those nails out and replace them with what they call deck screws. They're large wooden screws that you can get at your home center and screw the boards down to the uh, stringers that the uh, boards are secured to, and then you have less of a chance of them popping up again. Oh, that's great. And even some of the deck boards um, are slightly loose, and I'll just, you know, either tap the nails back down with a hammer if they're not up very far, or if they are, then I'll go ahead and take them out and replace them with screws. Well, you know, that makes a big difference, though. When you're walking on a deck and it's not squeaking as much or you don't have, you know, steps that are really loose, it, it really makes a big difference and it, it adds to the safety of it. Exactly, exactly. You want to you wanna make your house as safe as possible, whether it's inside or outside. Yes, yes. Well, your home's going to be just all ready to have some <laughs> grilling this spring and this summer. Everybody's going to want to come on over. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do cook outdoors a lot. I love, I love the grill that I have. It's uh, oh, great. They call it a char griller fifty fifty, which is a combination. Uh, one end of it, it has gas burners, and then the other end is charcoal. Oh, really? I've never heard such a thing. That's great. Yeah, I usually cook meats in the charcoal side because you love that good smoky flavor. And then, you know, I'll cook corn on the cob or potatoes or something like that on the gas side. And it even has a uh, firebox on the end of it where I can use it as a smoker if I want. You know, for you, when you're grilling steaks for a bunch of your friends and such, how do you know if that steak is ready to be turned over or if it's cooked enough? Do you use a digital thermometer or how do you do it? I have a talking... um meat probe thermometer uh-huh. that I can just uh, stick into the meat and hit the button and it tells me what the meat temperature is. And I can also tell just by the way it's sizzling. Usually when it gets closer to done, it's not sizzling quite as much. Oh, okay. You know, I bet you all of your friends, they're just in such awe when they see all these things you do because most people just don't think that a person who's blind can do these things. I mean, you're doing it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. That you, you just don't have to, you know, with any project, you know, if you really don't feel comfortable doing it, by all means, you know, get help, you know, get either a professional or a friend who does have experience doing it to help out, help out and at the same time, you know, see if you can get them to show you how they do it. Yes. Yes, that's right. 
you know. And usually when I'm walking with, you know, when I've, this is the third house that I've bought. And usually when you buy a house, one of the things you want to have done is have an inspection done. A lot of times, a lot of people, and the sighted people do this too, they'll just let the inspector do the inspection and, you know, look at the report um, and just go on their way. I usually walk with the inspector. I mean, I won't get in the way, but, you know, I'll walk with them and I'll ask questions about, you know, what's, what are you seeing and what's, you know, what the code requirements are um, and just uh, engage in it you know, engage with them. And a lot of them are pretty nice about it. You know, they'll tell you what they're seeing and, you know, what to look for in different things. Well, I think that's a really, really smart thing to do. And, uh, Larry, we got about 10 more minutes. Uh, Do you mind taking some questions if we have questions from our audience tonight? Sure, no problem. Okay. If any of you have questions about any projects that you're trying to do or that you want to do, or if you just want to know what types of tools Larry's using, uh, go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star one, and you could announce your name and 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 take uh, we'll, we'll take your question. All right, so, Larry, this is Tom from Wyoming. Hey, Tom. <laughs> Larry, Alex. Hey, wait. I I want to interject. Tom, was that a weight-bearing wall? Well, I was just going to explain that and be good for the it'd be good for the listeners as well. Uh, the house was built in the mid '80s, and so it has trusses, so it was not a load bearing wall. And when we opened the wall up, we put took the sheetrock off of one side so the electricians could do their work and you know strip their wires out and the thermostat controls and stuff. We could tell that it wasn't a bearing wall because there wasn't any weight on the studs. And so we basically take took the sheetrock off the other side, and then we just remove the studs with a with a uh, reciprocal saw with a carbide tip blade and cut them out, and basically cut the wall out. And then we built a a glue lamb beam out of two by sixes and a half inch piece of plywood sandwich between, so we had the the right width, you know, for a, a two by four basically. And then we uh, it was twelve feet long, and we and we uh, propped it up on each end with uh, two trimmers instead of one, and that those trimmers jacked it up real firm to the bottom of the trusses, and that so it it allowed us in that at least 12 foot area to have to kind of assist the trusses in supporting the roof. So excellent, it. excellent. Yeah, um, one of the things I recommended to people is if you have a house that has a basement and if you're noticing your floor starting to slope uh, or dip majorly, um, what you may need to do, and a lot of places already have them, uh, you may need to put uh, jacks in the basement. And they're like big poles that uh, they kind of work like a car jack does. And you just uh, put it in the middle of the basement or wherever the the level seems to be 
sagging the most and you stand it vertically between the floor of the basement and the ceiling of the basement and make sure it's centered on the joists, um, which are, you know, like they could either be two by twos or four by fours or depending on <laughs> who put them in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the code is you need to have, you know, the larger four by fours and, and stuff like that, but you want to get that jack in the center of it and then just, you know, screw it out to where it, uh, it's tight between the floor and the ceiling and then slowly work, you know, work it until that uh, floor becomes level again. Oh, that's a great idea. That's really great. All right, next question. Larry and Bill, this is Tom again. I'll, since no one has a question, I'll just say one of the things we didn't talk about and which we're going to have to do in our house after we inspected it, and you probably did this with yours too, Larry, is in, uh, one of the things that can really cut down on your uh, heating bill in the winter and your electrical bill in the summer with air conditioning is to go in your attic and make sure you have an extra, you know, some extra insulation because insulation over time, especially cellulose, will settle, and uh, it's a good idea once in a while to add to that and that will really make a difference in your electric bill, and also it will cut down on a lot of the sound that you'll hear from the outside in your house. It's like a whole different house when you do it. Absolutely. I, I couldn't yeah. agree more. And also what you'll want to do is check your windows. Make yeah. sure that the – depending on what style of window it is, um, I happen to have the uh, – they're the crank out windows, but they crank out to the side instead of up and down. And you want to make sure that the weather stripping on around the edges of it is in good shape. So when you close the window, it seals well. Um, if you're going to replace your windows, you want to make sure to get uh, the double pane windows that have the um, argon gas between the, the panes because that really cuts down on any outside noise and it also uh, does a good job at keeping the hot air out in the summer and the colder out in the winter. And now when you gentlemen talk about the insulation up in the attic, uh, do you recommend that you buy the type that's in a roll and you roll it out or is it better to have the insulation installers come? And I've seen this where they actually shoot it through a large tube and uh, all of that, is it fiberglass or whatever that is, they just shoot it up in, in between the different beams in the attic, which is recommended. It's, easy, it's easier, Bill, if you just uh, uh, I recommend fiberglass insulation blown in instead of bats that you roll out. And the reason is uh, you can cover so much area faster. And the company, the lumber yard that you buy your insulation from, it comes in bales. And they will usually let you borrow the uh, blower assembly. It's a big tub with a beater in the bottom, and it, and it breaks up the bale. And then it, it's a... It's a, it's a 
got a heck of a blower on it, and it blows that cellulose in through the tube, and you have to have a guy up in the attic, and uh, he just kind of spreads it around up there, and he wears a you know wears a mask. I can guarantee you. And uh, once that's done, you've got a nice sea, a real evenly uh, uh, applied sea of insulation up there, and it's uh, it's a it's a, and it happens real quick. You can do a whole attic in about three hours. Yeah, and also the new uh, cellulose insulation is recycled paper instead of fiberglass because fiberglass, if it gets on you, boy, it can really make you itch and irritate your skin quite a bit. And the 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 big difference um, between the two is what we found is the the normal fiberglass it doesn't settle quite as much as the cellulose. Right. Well, this is really, really great information. And, uh, uh, Larry, I want to thank you so much for you sharing your time, not only for ACB Radio and your show, but for being on this show. And if anybody has questions and wants to get in touch with you, uh, how might they best contact you? Um, They can email me. Uh, at Larry, L-A-R-R-Y, at acbradio.org, and just email me, and uh, we can, you know, if I can answer your questions there, or if it's going to be something to, if you need me to help walk you through something, um, then I can, we can set up a time to get together on the phone. Oh, that is wonderful. That's very generous of you. And uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA for recording this. This will be up on uh, the ACB website along with Airs LA at www.airsla uh, later this week. So, again, I want to thank everybody for coming on the show this evening, and we'll see you next month when we talk more about low vision. Good night, everybody. <laughs>